John Hankoski here with my co-host. Hi, Maddie. You've got a story for us now? Yeah, it's all about the myth of the alpha wolf. Hold it. The alpha wolf is a myth? This this big, tough wolf? I thought that was a true story. Nope. Wrong again, John. As usual, this term <laughs> just will not go away. In the two places I heard it a bunch when I was reporting it, dog training and insecure men on the internet. <laughs> insecure men on the internet. I, I can't believe that. I know, right? But the more I reported on it, the more I realized this story is really about how science works and how people use it to confirm their beliefs, whether it's true or not. And it's a little bit about what happens when scientists get something wrong and it becomes wildly popular. So for that, we got to start with Dr. Dave Meech. He was part of popularizing the term, and he has spent decades telling anybody who will listen that he and other scientists got it wrong. He's now a senior research scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey and founder of the International Wolf Center, and he's joining me from St. Paul, Minnesota. Dave, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Manny. All right, Dave. So let's get into it. The term alpha wolf was originally coined by Rudolf Schenkel in 1947. Tell me about the wolves in that particular study. Well, I should give you a little background first. At that time, you know, science knew very little about wolves. About all science knew, and, and that means that's all Schenkel would have known, is that uh, they live in a pack. Um, you know, they, he knew they howled and all that. But as far as their social structure was concerned, they, they lived in a group of animals. And he wanted to study the behavior of animals in a group, in this case, the wolves. And so he wanted to do that in captivity. To do that, he had to make a pack. And so he just got a bunch of wolves, uh, one or two from some zoo somewhere, another couple from another place, threw them all together. And that was his wolf pack. Now, it turns out he didn't know it at the time, but that's not how a wolf pack is organized. A wolf pack is basically a family, very analogous to a human family, a set of parents and their offspring. Mm -hmm. But Schenkel didn't know that. So he brought all these unrelated wolves together. And uh, when they put them all in the same enclosure, they did what um, quite a few species would do, they fought, figure out just who's the boss. And yeah, and so it turned out that the males fought and determined who was the top ranker, and the females did the same. And so Rudolf Schenkel uh, decided to name the top-ranking male the alpha male, and the top-ranking female the alpha female. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So we fast forward to the 60s, right? You are doing a lot of research. You're writing a book, and you wrote a book that included that term. Tell me a little bit about that and your role in, in this term. The book I wrote was supposed to be a uh, compendium of just about all that was known about wolves at that time, including Schenkel's work. Since I didn't know any better, I accepted what, what uh, Schenkel said and put that in the book. And that was 1968. The book was published in 1970. When it came out, that book ended up being a bestseller. So that told the public that in a wolf pack, you have the alpha male and the alpha female. And that book was in print until last year. So over 50 years. And I knew before 2022 that that was not correct. But it wasn't until 1999 
that I published what essentially would be a correction of that. The book comes out, right? For various reasons, people are latching on to this idea. And then you realize that maybe this isn't quite right. When did you realize that? Um, but it wasn't until I actually got to watch a family group up close that my wheels started turning about, you know, the individual interactions amongst the pups and the adults and all that. And so that was when I went to Ellesmere Island, up uh, far northern Canada, where where the wolves uh, were not afraid of people and I could actually live right with them each summer. So I did that from 1986 to 2010. Wow. And as I did that, you know, there was no doubt as to who was the mother and who was the father. And then they had the yearlings and the pups and that varied a little bit from year to year. But basically there was just, that was the, the way the family was organized. So it was clear that there was a dominance hierarchy. That was not a problem. As we got into the 90s, we put wolves in Yellowstone National Park. You know, I could watch them as well, and I did that. In in all of those observations, the ones at Ellesmere and the ones in Yellowstone, I could see that how those packs formed was just a young animal from one pack, I say a, a um, maturing yearling or two-year-old, male or female, both the same, uh, as they mature, they leave the pack and they circulate around the population, find a vacant place where there are no other wolves, find each other and mate and produce their own offspring. And that's how a pack forms. What I didn't see was wolves fighting each other to come to the top of a pack. In other words, the social order in a pack was automatically established when the pack was established, just merely by the adults producing pups. And those offspring then, just like in a human family, naturally just being subordinate to their parents. You know, when these original studies were done back in the 40s, you know, this idea of the tough dominant male was very much mainstream. Do you think that could have influenced how the original data was interpreted rather than, you know, we put all these wild wolves in one pack in captivity? Oh, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Yeah. And, and you know, we do have these human dominance hierarchies with, with the general being at the top and all that. So we recognize human dominance hierarchies. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't doubt that that was a factor when Schenkel did his study. Yeah. Okay, Dave, this was wonderful. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, you're quite welcome. I enjoyed it, Maddie. Thank you. Dr. Dave Meach is a senior research scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey and founder of the International Wolf Center based in St. Paul, Minnesota. After the break, how the myth of the alpha wolf shows up in our everyday lives. Stick with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Maddie Safaya. And we're back talking about the myth of the alpha wolf, the idea that a top dog fights to rule a wolf pack. Before the break, wolf researcher Dr. Dave Meech told us about how he realized the alpha wolf largely doesn't exist. Instead, wolf packs are more like families, with a breeding pair, a mom and a dad, guiding the pack. Dave has been trying to correct the record for decades, but the alpha wolf idea just won't go away. You'll hear about it everywhere, like in TV shows. I am the alpha. In commercials. You will begin to notice you can outrun, outclimb, 
Out throw, out jump, out sleep, out drink, out brag, and outperform the competition. It's become synonymous with a particular type of masculinity. Each and every one of us can be alpha. Being alpha, it's in all of us, as long as we embrace the spirit of alpha. It even informs how we train our dogs. We find out the top five ways to become the alpha amongst your Siberian Huskos. Come on, let's go. Here to talk about all that are Anna Marie Johnson, PhD candidate and canine behavior consultant at Arizona State University based in Tempe, Arizona, and Dr. Lindsay Palmer, a social and behavioral scientist who studies the human-animal bond at the UMass Chan Medical School in Massachusetts. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Anna Marie, let's start with you. You study dog behavior. You've trained dogs for a long time. Tell me a little bit about how this term alpha wolf shows up in your world. When I was dog training, I would have a lot of uh, clients kind of in my introduction sections, and they would talk about how they didn't feel comfortable letting their dog on the couch because they didn't want their dog to think it was alpha over them. And that always just hurt my heart because I was just like, well, If you want to have your dog on the couch to cuddle, go for it. Your dog's not going to all of a sudden assume this hierarchical position and think it rules the roost. Right. So there's a lot of this traditional mentality um, that has been described in the literature. And it's just kind of perpetuated down the line and has gotten a resurgence uh, through television and social media. And so that has trickled down to the general public. Yeah. And I I know that there's a bit of a divide in the dog training community. There are people who use a more reward-based training, like treats and toys and kind of exactly what it sounds like. And then there's those that use what's called aversive training, basically making your dog physically or emotionally uncomfortable to get them to kind of do a desired behavior, like physically manipulating them or using a shock collar, for example. What is that tension and how does the alpha wolf play into that? Totally. So uh, I jokingly say it's not even just like a gap or a divide. It's kind of a chasm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it comes down to really uh, the two kind of camps, uh, so to speak, are what people kind of generally say are positive reinforcement. So they're using, as you said, treats and toys in order to kind of get behaviors and modify behaviors in um, dogs. So as opposed to there being more of what colloquial is called kind of balance training, where they're also using uh, rewards and treats and play, but rather than trying to provide an alternative behavior for the dog to choose, they'll choose to correct the behavior, right? They're trying to punish the behavior, decrease the likelihood it's going to happen again. And so that can be using physical manipulation. It can be using aversive tools like a prong collar or uh, electronic shock collar. And all of that kind of ties into this uh, dominance idea where there's this concept that in order for the dog to do the behavior you want, you kind of have to exert some type of control over it. Um, And once again, this idea that if you give your dog an inch, they're going to take a mile. And so you need to kind of be a very strict controlled environment, this leader of the pack mentality that some dog trainers within aversive communities do have. I want to clarify, it's not everyone, Uh, but that is kind of that kind of dominant mentality that some trainers um, within certain camps do have. Okay, so what do the data tell us about these two different types of training? Generally speaking, in the last, I would say, 
20 years or so, uh, the scientific literature has provided some insight into the fact that non-aversive, so training um, with you know treats and rewards, is better for a dog's welfare, whether that be their stress or even actually cognition. They perform better on different tests. They can do better training, as opposed to uh, aversive methods where dogs are performing more stress-related behaviors and performing worse on different cognition tests. Okay, so it looks like from the data that we have now, and I, I know we always need more, that the positive reinforcement training seems to be best for the welfare of the dog in, in, in most cases. Are there situations where aversive methods are appropriate? That's a tough question. So there's no doubt that punishment works. But there's a lot of caveats to that use of punishment. And so I'm strictly talking about, let's talk about shock, right? So the idea of a shock collar, shock does work. We know that. Uh, the problem is that uh, the general dog owner is going to have a really difficult time with implementing correct timing, knowing what correct device is going to be right for their dog, knowing what level. So there's so many caveats to it that it runs the potential risk that there could be fallout for your dog. Yeah. And Lindsay, you've actually got some preliminary data, essentially asking if exposing people to this idea of dominance, like the alpha wolf, for example, actually leads them to train dogs in a way that mimics that. Yeah. So in our ongoing work, we find that mere exposure to dominance theory or other sorts of dominance hierarchies between dogs doesn't give us a complete picture of why people use aversive methods. In our work, we found that the reason why dominance theory predicts the endorsement of aversive methods is because it's mediated by hegemonic masculinity, which is the culturally epitomized or idealized definition of manhood. And so the reason why that dominance theory predicts the endorsement of aversive methods is because of beliefs in traditional gender norms and in particular, hegemonic masculinity. Right. And and it's probably not surprising to, you know, somebody like you who, like, studies this human-animal bond. But I really thought, like, maybe this theory came from this alpha wolf. And maybe people are just hearing about the alpha wolf, and that's, like, enough. But it's not. It's, like, based in this societal belief system, right? Yeah. And so that was definitely our inspiration for looking at this variable is that our own social scripts, sort of our beliefs about what is going on in our own culture might actually be mapping on and how we interpret animal behavior. Yeah. And, and Anna Marie, you looked into gender and dog training too, right? Like what kind of people are more likely to like alpha wolf their dogs. I did a comparison of uh, 100 dog trainers across the United States, and I just was pulling information from their websites. Someone was presenting as male or female. I coded that as a male or female trainer and looked at what kind of method they used to train. And while there definitely were female aversive trainers in the mix, statistically, there were more female uh, trainers that would identify to a non-aversive or a positive reinforcement training methodology compared to men. Okay, so so let me make sure I've got everything right. It's It's not just that people, you know, like heard about this alpha wolf study or heard, you know, in movies or whatever, and were like, okay... 
this is the way we train dogs. It's more like this observation fits really well into an already established worldview of this like dominance-based masculinity. And, and the people who tend to accept that kind of use this as evidence to kind of dominate their dogs in that way. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's definitely something we see in our work is that, first of all, establishing dominance and control is really central to achieving the idealized status of manhood. And so we definitely sort of see how, at least in our work, how dominance theory is really mapping on. So one of the things that we found, for example, in our work is this relationship was most meaningful for men. So even though all genders in our study, you know, if they endorsed hegemonic masculinity, this would lead to the endorsement of aversive methods. We found that it was most meaningful for the cisgender men in our sample, just sort of really mapping onto social scripts that we already have. And we're using that social information to be able to understand and navigate our world with animals. Can I ask you about that, Lindsay? Because that, that, I think for a lot of people listening, you know, it might feel a little strange talking about, you know, like human gender and our relationship with pets. But our human biases very much impact the way we think about animals and the way we interpret data, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of literature out there about, you know, experimenter bias, basically how our knowledge is socially situated. So that comes a lot from Black feminist thought is standpoint theory or the idea that our knowledge is socially situated. So our social positions and our experiences impact how we interpret the world around us. Your beliefs and your experiences and your knowledge, you know, are situated within your your position, basically. And this is what is what you're using to navigate your social world. And so our beliefs, attitudes do impact our behavior. Right, right. Can you give me like just some examples of like performing gender in our relationship with animals, you know, other than this wolf study? Oh, yeah. So I think that using aversive methods, for example, is is actually a kind of a type of gender performance in dog training, because using aversive methods based off of what the definition of hegemonic masculinity is, is sort of this emotional toughness, right? Or even, you know, putting clothes on your dog might be a more feminine gendered performance. So we do have those sorts of culturally acceptable ways of interacting with our animals that are based off of our gender. Okay, so back when this original research was coming out, right, like 40s, 50s, 60s, it was all being done by men in a time where very stark traditional gender roles were the standard in the U.S., Do you think that could have played a role in how these men interpreted the wolves' behavior? Yeah. So, you know, um, sort of throughout psychological research, there's actually been, you know, a phenomenon of, you know, especially because in so many, so many studies, like we have a lot of underrepresentation of certain types of social groups. So we often find that a dominant cultural perspective is often the lens through which we interpret results. So for example, um, and this is completely unrelated to dogs, but like even the research on gender differences in heart attacks, those results were really interpreted from the lens of male, male bodies, right? And so we actually didn't know exactly how gender impacted the manifestation of different types of cardiac events until much later, because we were generating knowledge from a very um, specific type of perspective in this research. I'm Maddie Safaya. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 
Yeah, it's really, it's kind of interesting to me that this alpha wolf theory and the late dominance theory have really stuck around, even with very little science backing them in these contexts. Lindsay, can you speculate why that is? I think part of the reason why it sticks around is just because it has, you know, really infiltrated popular culture. And so it's just a narrative that it just refuses to die because it sort of just exists within our social consciousness. And for many people, they just, you know, repeat this type of information and they don't really know the source of it. It's just sort of out there and it exists. And so it's like playing a giant telephone game with everybody around you, right? Where, you know, maybe there is this education available to get a more informed perspective on their companion animals. But unfortunately, this information is just out there. So it's the most widely available information because you can just if it's in popular culture, you can literally just walk up to anyone on the street and have this regurgitated out you, right? Unfortunately, the way to deal with this sort of information is the way that you combat any type of misinformation, which is just actually very difficult. And then on top of that, you know, from what we've seen in our studies is that education alone at this point may not be the only answer. So we may also have to do some, you know, cultural change here and maybe even develop interventions around, you know, masculinity and encouraging a more healthy masculinity and showing people that there are other ways to have relationships with animals that are not just dominating and controlling them. Absolutely. Yeah, that 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 leads me to like, you know, what I want to kind of close with. I want y'all to kind of speak to all the dog parents out there. I just got a new puppy and I have been trying to figure out the best way to like train with her, bond with her, not have her openly disrespect me in public. You know, I'm hearing that the idea of pretending like I'm an alpha dog is unnecessary and I would venture uh, even weird because I'm not a dog. Um, You know, what does the science say about some good ways for us to bond with our doggos? Yeah, so I would wholeheartedly agree. You know, your dog does not think you are a dog. I think we sometimes aspire a lot of uh, knowledge on our dogs and then sometimes uh, have them just as these naturalistic behaviors. And there's a weird cognitive dissonance that happens (laughs) um, for some people there. But I would say, honestly, this most simple thing, you know, not getting into the, the training debate, is just to kind of provide opportunities where you are together. The science shows that uh, it's a great stress reducer just to be present with your dog and have a dog present around a human. So it could be you both sitting on the couch. If you so choose, Uh, your dog will not think they are alpha over you. But if your dog pees on the couch, it's a different story, right? (laughs) But if your dog is respectful on the couch and is totally fine, welcome your dog and sit on the couch and watch something together Um, or go on a walk. Um, Any of these kind of really chill bonding experiences can actually help that creation to kind of have your dog uh, seek you as a point of comfort and uh, resource for them. Your dogs are not silly. Uh, They know there exists a relationship because we provide everything for them. Adding that as a training um, to kind of power on to the dynamics that are already there uh, isn't necessary. Right. So I'm hearing like your dog knows that you're kind of the boss because you provide 
it's food and shelter. You know, there's there, there's no there's no push and pull there necessarily. We control all our dogs' resources, but needing to heighten that relationship by um, exerting physical control over our dogs in relation to training just isn't necessary. The dogs know that we exist and provide them food, shelter, water, access to resources, access to other dogs. That's all there. And so you are totally fine in letting your dog on the couch. Um, it is not a slippery slope. <laughs> all right. So check out your dog trainers and it's okay to cuddle your dog. That's what I'm taking from this. Yes, exactly. All right. Okay. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you so much. I had fun. Thank you. Anna Marie Johnson is a Ph.D. candidate and canine behavior consultant at Arizona State University based in Tempe, Arizona. Dr. Lindsay Palmer, a social and behavioral scientist who studies the human-animal bond at the UMass Chan Medical School in Massachusetts. 